I'm really excited about this series. For the next 10 weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the person of Jesus. And the reason I, I chose this series, I've been thinking about it for some time, and, and I was spurred by it when I heard an interview by Britt Hume. Uh, and it was some time ago, and it was, it was right in the middle of this thing with Tiger Woods. Britt Hume, former CBS uh, news correspondent with Fox News, I think he's like an emeritus guy right now, but he was on a political talk show, and uh, someone was asking him the question, what do you think Tiger Woods should, should do in this situation? And Hume responded, I think Tiger Woods should give his life to Jesus Christ, because only then will he find the peace and be able to get his life in the way that it needs to be. Well, the next day, it, it was all over the place. I mean, Hume was excoriated in the press for suggesting such a thing, even on a political opinion show. But Hume responded, Why is Jesus Christ taboo in polite conversation or in the world of politics and media? I think it's been true for a long time in many cultures. It's certainly true in secular America today that the most controversial two words you can ever utter in the public space are Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? Jesus Christ is unquestionably the most controversial figure that's ever walked the face of the earth. How is it that some people can look at Jesus Christ and hear his message and give their lives to him and spend the rest of their life giving away everything they have, going to the four corners of the earth, laying down their life for him because they believe in him so much? And yet another person can look at Jesus Christ and hate what he stands for, to the point that they will devote their entire life proving that he is not who he said he was. How can someone be so controversial? You know, when you think of it, some of the greatest works of art, the greatest uh, accomplishments of science have been attributed to Jesus Christ. Think of people like Bach and Handel and Da Vinci and Bunyan, all of these great Kepler and Pascal. And yet these unspeakable atrocities have also been uh, done by people who claim to act in his name. Jesus is the most controversial person. So we need to take a good look at him. Who is he? Where did he come from? What does he want from us? What does he want for us? We need to peel back the layers and take a look at this person of Jesus Christ. Because to understand who we are, we must first understand who he is. So the way that we're going to do that is we're going to do it through the book of Colossians. Colossians is a, is a book um, that was written in the scriptures by Paul. It was actually a letter written to a church at Colossae, which was in western Turkey. And this church was founded when these two guys, Epaphras and Philemon, went to Ephesus to hear Paul preach the gospel. And they were so moved in hearing of Jesus that they became Christians themselves, and they went back to Colossae, and they preached the gospel to their friends, and people believed, and this little church was started. But they were in the vast minority in their church. And all around them there were people, particularly this element of these people called the Gnostics, that were really hitting on them saying, this can't be true, this person you call Jesus. Oh, he's a great teacher, he's, he's this, he's that, but he can't be the Son of God. And so Paul writes this eloquent letter, really the, the one more than any in the scriptures, focused on laying out who is this person of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to look at today. And I'm going to read the passage, the introduction that Paul gives in his letter to the Colossians. You can find it either in the scriptures or in your bulletin. This is Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. 
We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is our faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, it's either week three or four, and the Wisconsin standoff continues. I don't know if any of you have been following this whole thing brewing in Wisconsin over the governor, Scott Walker, and the unions. And, and the issue here is Walker is seeking to repeal a couple things. One, the bargaining rights of the union, but also he's seeking to lower the benefits, the, the pension, uh, the things that have been put in place for these workers, teachers, uh, municipal workers, for their retirement. And it has just created a firestorm. I mean, they had a, a Vietnam-era protest just uh, yesterday there in Madison, Wisconsin. Well, what's going on here? I, I think what is stirring this up? I think it is that, that some of these folks, in addition to the union issue, are looking at, wait a second, we took less money in order to get more benefits because we wanted something at the end of our life. When we finished our careers, we wanted to have something to show for our efforts. And now you're taking that away, and we are as mad as hornets. Well, the Wisconsin workers aren't alone because the reality is I read this article in the USA Today, the 401k generation is also beginning to retire, and it isn't a pretty sight. The median household headed by a person aged 60 to 62 is less than a quarter of what is needed according to maintaining their standard of living. It would appear that participants have insufficient savings. Many of us can identify with this. In fact, some of you are, thanks for bringing that up in church, Rodriguez. You just lost me. Well, I was going to bring my 401k as well to show it to all of you, but it kept floating out of my hands up to the ceiling because it was so ethereal and light. <laughs> We're all feeling this pain of this economy. But, you know, it's, it's extremely frustrating, isn't it, for some of us who are further along. You know, I've worked, I've spent all this time, I want something to show for my efforts, and I look and I don't see like I have a lot in my hands. The reality is it's hard to get a good return on our investment, isn't it? Not only in money, but also in life. You spend time in your relationships with people. You, you have a hope. You have a dream, you pour your life into something, you really sweat, and, but at the end of it, you come and you're, you're looking and there isn't just that much there. You know, I'm looking in my own life, dealing in my own situation with a friend who I've had for years and years and years, where we've enjoyed sweet fellowship and we're in this challenging time right now and I'm looking and I'm wondering, is there going to be anything left? It's hard to get a good return on our investment. We want to make our investments last. We want to have something to show at the end of our life. 
you know, deeply this question that we have is a spiritual question. What's our life worth? What's the worth of a life? And I think it's a spiritual question because in our heart of hearts, we understand something, that at the end of the day, there's going to be some sort of wane of our life, on some sort of scale with God, when all of our accomplishments, all of our life is going to be put on a scale, and we're afraid that it's going to go just like this. And we're not going to have anything to show for the life that we live. See, the deepest desire of the human heart is an inheritance. And that inheritance is from God, a recognition from God of our lives, a blessing of God, a a well done. The favor of God is what we need. It's what we crave and it's what we hope for. And yet deep down we wonder if there really is going to be anything when it's all said and done. What if there was a way that we could know our inheritance? What if there was a way that we could know the end of our life, even when we were in the middle of it right now? We could know the certainty of what would happen when our lives were placed on that scale. Do you think that we would live differently? I do. I think there'd be so much more peace in our life, more confidence in the future, less scrabbling around and looking and, and, for, and more giving, less trying, more trusting, more living the lives that we feel and hope that we would be able to live in this life. Well, that's what I want to talk about today, the certain inheritance that we have. Because the premise of this sermon is simple. The real Jesus is the only one who can give us an unshakable inheritance, the kingdom of God and the favor of God. And so we must live in his inheritance, not in any other. In the brief time that I have left, I want to touch on three points. Number one, what is this inheritance? Number two, what's the means of it? How does it come to us? And finally, number three, how do we live uh, today in light of this inheritance? And we're going to use this passage. As we look at this passage, number one, what is this inheritance? As we read this passage that I just read, we see that something has gotten into the Colossians. Something they're drinking. Something's in the water at Colossae because they're acting and living a little bit different, a little bit crazy. Listen in verse 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. In this section where he talks about faith in Christ Jesus, in the original language, he's not actually talking about Christ Jesus as the object of his faith, but rather the grounds of his faith, their faith. In other words, he's talking about the faith that they're having in all the things that they're doing the way they're living their life, the way they're spending their money, the way they're interacting with the world. They're living in a different way. But if they're living in a different way, they're also loving in a different way. We see this faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints. They're loving one another in a sacrificial, beautiful way, the kind of way that you would want to be loved, the kind of way if you walked into a community, you would say, wow, that is the community that I want to be a part of. They're doing it there at Colossae. Something's in the water. Something's got a hold of them. What is it that's stirring them? Look in verse 5, and it tells us, the faith and the love which spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. See, in this gospel, something has come to the Colossians. And Paul makes it seem like this gospel is alive. Verse 6, all over the world this gospel is producing fruit. 
and growing as it has been doing among you since you heard it. What is this hope that the, that the Colossians have heard? The, the, the word is simple, inheritance. They've heard of an inheritance, something that's stored up for them that they didn't know about that they have discovered. It's like a rich uncle has walked into Colossians and they've heard of something that they didn't know about. Well, what is this inheritance? As I look at this passage, I can see two parts of it. The first is the position of God toward them, and the second is the possession of God for them. Number one, the position of God toward them. Look at verse six. All over the world, this gospel is producing fruit and growing as it has been doing among you since you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. In the gospel, they hear the grace of God, the favor of God. That word in the Greek, charis, is where we get the word charity. They've heard of the charity of God. In fact, the actual meaning of that word is to stoop or to bend down. Notice it doesn't say to bow down, but rather to bend down. It would be like if someone was on the road and they were, they were beaten up like that uh, good Samaritan and someone walked along and instead of walking by them, they would turn and they would look at them and they would face them and they would bow down, bend down and they would help them. They would stoop down and they would lift them up. See, that's what's going on. They've heard of the graciousness of God in the gospel and they're so struck by it because intuitively they understand that they don't deserve the grace of God. Something I think that we all know if we look at ourselves honestly in the mirror. You know, in the scriptures and human experience tells us this. Someone once asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourselves. And as we look at this passage, as we look at ourselves, can anyone claim that we've loved God with all our heart, mind, and soul? Can anyone stand before God and say, yes, I have loved my neighbor as myself? Yet that's God's standard. Be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. If you break one part of the law, it's like you broke all of the law. And yet we see God stepping down here. Romans 3.23 puts it this way. The wages of sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And yet we see in this message of Chorus, God stooping down, not to bring retaliation, but to bring grace. What's going on? They've received a new position. But if so, they've also received a new possession. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of life. They've received the word that they who are disqualified have been qualified. God has done the work. They have a new possession waiting for them, an inheritance of the holy ones, the saints, in the kingdom of light. This kingdom, and they're describing it as light, it's a place where there's no darkness. It's a place where there's justice. It's a place where God dwells, and it's a place that's theirs that they've heard about in this message of the gospel. Verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us in the kingdom of the son that he loves. Why are the Colossians' life changed? Because they're no longer questioning. What's my life gonna be at the end of the day? They've found the answer, the position of God of blessing and the possession of God, the kingdom of light. What if we lived that way? Not questioning, 
What if we could know the end of our story before we ever lived it? I remember uh, being at a swim meet a little while ago with uh, our kids. Our kids swam. And uh, one of our kids had made it to uh, divisionals. He was real young at the time, probably seven years old. And he'd made it to that next level. And we were so excited for him. And he was excited. And, you know, you wait around in these swim meets for like six hours to watch your kids swim 30 seconds. Well, it was his 30 seconds of fame. It was when he was going to take the title. It was in the breaststroke. And it was in the bag. Okay? There's, now, here's the thing, though. It's important to note. Kids who are seven years old have a hard time remembering what's going on. And they're training in all these different strokes, so it's very important that the parents and the coaches tell them, this is the stroke you're going to be doing. So needless to say, he's excited, we're excited, I'm already, you know, collecting victory cigars. And my son gets up, and the coaches forget to tell him. And off goes the gun. And everybody jumps in and starts their breaststroke, except for one. And he's freestyling. And he's moving. And the water's churning up. And he's killing everybody. There's only one problem. It's a wrong stroke. And I look at Lee Ellen, and she looks at me, and we look over at the judge, and you know what he does? Pulls out his pen. Disqualified. Wait, 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 no, 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 don't do that. I could have ran over to that judge. I could have yelled at him. You can't do that. You've got to give him another shot. It wouldn't have made a difference. I could have done swimmer's road rage, you know. I could have, like, yelled at everyone and pulled a gun and get out of the pool. We're going to run it again. It wouldn't make a difference. Disqualified. There's no way to get back. But what we see in the gospel is that there is a way. In the gospel, the word of truth, God makes those who are disqualified, qualified. Those who have no business in the kingdom of light, as inheritors of the kingdom of light. Those who have no business receiving the love and the favor of God, reveling in it. We, because this is true of all of those who believe in Christ Jesus, it's true for us as well. And so my application for us is that we must live in the reality of who we are. See, for so many of us, we have this unbelievable inheritance, and yet we live day in, day out, unsure of our standing with God. See, many of us are Christians, and we know all the right answers. We know all the verses. You know, we drive to church, we put on our smile, and we walk in. But deep in our hearts, we've got a sign that we're wearing around our neck right here. Disqualified. And some of us, we don't even know Christ. We haven't met Christ. We haven't given our lives to Christ. And we're out there chipping away, trying to find a way to make our life work at the end of the day. But there is no way. There's only one sign for us, disqualified. But in the gospel, we hear the hope that is stored up for us, a hope that causes us to live different. We see the picture of God's grace in all its truth. We see that God takes our sign and he turns it Regardless of what we've done, it's what he's done, and he makes us qualified. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed from first to last, a righteousness that is by faith. Like the Colossians, we must seek to understand God's grace in all its truth. We must know our inheritance. I want to challenge us that how do we do this? We must do what they did. We must peer deeply into the gospel. Firstly, 
by reading and contemplating this word of truth that has come to us. You know, this word of truth in Colossians, it came to them as a letter. Let me ask you a question. How many times do you think the Colossians read the letter? I can hear them. Hey, Harry, give me the letter. I've had a bad day. Oh, yeah, that's right. See, we have to remember the gospel. We must read his word. You know what this is? This is a treasure map is what it is. It leads us to the inheritance that God has given for us. It's not only a treasure map, though. It's also an inventory. It's an inventory of the riches that are for the sons and daughters of God that God has qualified by his grace. And so we must read it. How are we doing day in, day out? Taking that time to spend time to peer into God's word. That's why we do this Foundations of the Faith class, so we can know God's word and so we can rest in it. But we also must do one other thing. We must be Epaphras to each other. How did they hear this message of truth at Colossae? Well, Epaphras brought it back. He said, guys, I got to tell you something. You're not going to believe this. See, we need Epaphrases in our life that we can be Epaphrases to one another and they can be it to us, encouraging us. That's why we're doing these neighborhood community groups, coming together to look at the gospel together because we need encouragement. Because all around the world, we're hearing these messages, no, it's not true. It's not true. But it is true. The real Jesus is the only one who can give us an unshakable inheritance, the favor of God and the kingdom of God. So we must live in this inheritance, not in any other. Well, this brings me to my second point. If we know the inheritance, we must also understand the means of our inheritance. I read a story that came out of a Bolivia newspaper in the year 2000 regarding a man they call the homeless millionaire. A homeless man, supposed to be living on the streets of Santa Cruz, Bolivia, fled police who were bringing him news of a $6 million inheritance. Thomas Martinez, 67, apparently thought the police were about to arrest him for his alcohol and drug habits. The man disappeared without a trace, cause, calling, uh, causing Bolivian newspapers to speak of him as a new millionaire, paradoxically not knowing his fortune. His inheritance came from his ex-wife, who inherited money. The unlucky man has never been found. See, for many of us, we just can't believe it. Hey, Carlos, that's great. I love the sign deal, okay? But I just can't believe it. We need to know more. We need to understand the means of our inheritance. Because in, under, we understand something, that you don't get something for nothing. So what's the catch? What's the catch? Well, Paul speaks of the catch right here in verse 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, what's the hinge upon which this whole thing of inheritance turns? The hinge is Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the king, and he is the redeemer. Let's look at these two things. Number one, he is the king. We have to understand who Jesus is. It's not just the kingdom, it's the kingdom of the Son. And so we understand that Jesus is in the position of all authority and power. I'm not going to steal my thunder from next sermon, but if you look just a little bit further down, we see that the Son is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created, invisible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him, and in him everything holds together so that in him he might have the supremacy. Jesus, the real Jesus, is the king. 
and he stands above all. He's the one that holds everything together. He's the one that holds every molecule in your body together right now. If Jesus were just to turn his head for a second, we would all drop dead right now. Who is keeping all of the moons orbiting around Saturn? Who is keeping the asteroid belt in its place? Who is keeping the temperature of the earth as it is right now? It's Jesus Christ. He is the king, the king over all. But we see that in this king, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As the Colossians were reading this passage, when they heard this word redemption, they would have thought about it differently than us. See, when we think of redemption, we think of a religious term. But when they thought of redemption, they thought of a term of the marketplace. Because redemption back there meant ransom. Specifically in the area of slaves or prisoners of war. Okay, if you were a slave and you were under the control of another person, there was only one way that you were going to get out. Someone was going to have to pay the, the ransom price, the redemption price, the apolytrosis is the word. And so day in, day out, that slave would live under the master, hoping someone would come to pay the price. Because without the price, there was no way to go free. And we see, what is it that we're under? What has bound us? It is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The price is the forgiveness of sins. Without sin, sin is the master that is over people who are in slavery. And the scriptures then say that if he is the one who is the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, then he is the one who has paid the price of redemption. The question, of course, is what is the price? So you don't get something for nothing, do you? There's got to be a price. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. The price of sin is death. Ephesians 1, 7, which is a, Ephesians and Colossians are sort of companion books with, the, with each other. There's a passage that mirrors this almost exactly, but it says it just a slightly different way. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. See, the redemption price is not money. The redemption price is blood. In the Old Testament, we see this elaborate sacrificial system that was created by God to deal with this problem of sin. How were you going to atone for the people? It was through the sacrifice of animals. The high priest, many of you know this, where blood would be shed in order to save the wrath of God from coming down on the people. But all of that was just a picture. Hebrews 9.22 puts it this way. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. The Old Testament is just a shadow of Jesus' price of redemption. Listen to Hebrews. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, we've heard of a king who is above all, a great high and exalted king, but who has ever heard of a king who's willing to die on behalf of his people? See, some of us, we really love this God, this picture of this God who is above all, the, the God who is enthroned, the, the just God, the God of black and white, 
The God who, who calls him passionately. If you live right, you live. But if you live wrong, you die. And we want a God like that. But a God who comes down, a suffering God, no, we, don't, we don't have any taste for that. But you see, there's some of us that want that God, the God who's, who cares, the God who comes alongside us, the God who's compassionate, the God who's kind. The God, we want that God, but a God who demands righteousness, a God who demands blood, a God who demands all of these things or there's death. We don't want that God. The reality is Jesus Christ is both the high king who comes down lowly to suffer on behalf of his people. Only the real Jesus can do both of those. Only in Christ do we see the love that a king would go to such lengths to redeem his people. I saw an interesting movie recently, Slumdog Millionaire. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Has anyone seen that movie? It's a powerful movie. It's about these three uh, kids who grow up uh, homeless on the streets of Mumbai in India. Uh, Salim, Jamal, and uh, the two brothers, and this gal, Latika, who's, Latika, who's the third uh, person. And there's a powerful picture. And from the beginning, Jamal and Latika love each other. You know, first as sister and brother, but it it grows into more than that. There's this beautiful picture, but invariably they continue to be separated because of sin and because of, first because of Jamal, uh, Salim, the brother, who acts capriciously, and then she gets involved with crime and she cannot escape and she's forced into this life of prostitution. And yet Jamal never forgets about Latika. And he continues to pursue her and look for her. And, and, and he ends up on this show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he starts answering all the questions and he continues to do better and better on the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So much so that he gets arrested by the police and, you know, the laws are totally different, and they, and they interrogate him, they torture him, because they can't believe that this slum dog would be able to have all these answers. And there's a very powerful scene in the movie where he's sitting there before these people, and he's been telling the story of Latika and, and what's been going on and how he's been trying to find her, and the detective realizes why he's gone on slum dog million, uh, million, uh, who wants to be a millionaire. It's not to make the money at all. It's to find Latika. He doesn't care about the money. He cares about finding her. And that's why, even after being tortured, even after being threatened, even after whatever, he continues to go on and on and on in hopes that he will find Latika. There's a beautiful picture at the end where they're reunited, and, and, and it's, it's fantastic, and it's beautiful. And, but in it, you see the love of a person that will go to such lengths to find the one that he loves. In the movie, I'll finish with, with this. In the movie, she's always wearing yellow. She's always wearing yellow, except for one time when she's sort of given up on life and she's, she's the possession of this crime boss and she tells Jamal to go away. She's always wearing yellow. And they've thought, why, why is she wearing yellow? The reason she's wearing yellow is hope. Hope that someone would come for me. We have a means for our inheritance. Jesus Christ, who has come for us. And because we have a God who has come for us, we can take confidence in the inheritance that we have. See, when you don't think that God loves you, look to Jesus Christ. When you look at your life, at the end of it, and you say it doesn't amount to much, look at Jesus Christ. When you think you have nothing to show in your life, look to Jesus Christ. 
You know what the cross is? The cross is a key. It's a key to the inheritance that God has given for you. Since you have been given an unshakable inheritance, let us live our lives for that inheritance, not the inheritance for the world. My final point, living an inheritance in the future in this life now. How do we do that? How do we take this unbelievable inheritance and bring it forward? Paul touches on this point. He says in verse 9, For this reason, since we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. See, Paul is saying, since you have received this unshakable inheritance, start living in it now. We need to start living in it now because something happens that as we live in the inheritance now, we start to appropriate that which has been stored up for us in the future. The inheritance comes. And so Paul prays. He prays for spiritual help, that they might have spiritual wisdom. We need spiritual assistance. That's why God has given us the Holy Spirit, this deposit that is a guarantee of what is to come. And Paul paints a picture of what this inheritance life should look like. It's the picture of us. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Notice that each of these phrases represent an ongoing work, something that is ever-increasing, bearing fruit, growing in knowledge, being strengthened. Paul is saying that as you seek to live out this life, it will start to come to you. We are called to live this life now. How do we do it? We take risks. We reach out. It's very interesting. If you take a plant, you know what happens in a plant? As a plant reaches out above, the roots grow below. That as we seek to live this inheritance life, putting our trust in Christ and what he's done for us, living dependently by the Spirit, trusting that everything that's said in here is true and that if we put our weight on it, God will be there for us. As we reach out, God reaches out below, transforming and shaping us into new people, the people that we are meant to be. What if we were a church that started living in line with our inheritance? What if Church of the Redeemer, someone walks into Church of the Redeemer and they look around and they see a bunch of sequoias because we had trusted Christ enough to reach out? See, that's what it's all about. It's all about us growing to maturity in Christ and it's about us growing into maturity together. And so let us examine God's word. Let us be Epaphras to one another. Let us know our inheritance, trust in the means of our inheritance, Christ Jesus, and live in our inheritance. The real Jesus is the only one who can give us an unshakable inheritance, the favor of God and the kingdom of God. So let us live in his inheritance and not in any other. Let's pray.